when you do stuff like that, when you ride your bike instead of driving, eat less meat, that changes who you are as a person. And I think here too, economists, we tend to assume that people come into the world with fully formed identities and preferences. No, that's not the way it works at all. We become who we are gradually over the course of a lifetime. You're, you're, you're not who you were a week ago. And you become who you are by what you do. Hello, friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where we chat with people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. We hope that you will listen, learn, and begin giving a damn in your world today, wherever you may be. Now, we will continue to bring on incredible black leaders in the weeks and months ahead. Why? Because we have so much to learn from them, and we have so many things to consider as our society and culture begins to make monumental changes. Today is not one of those days, but we do have a fantastic conversation lined up for you. Robert H. Frank is a professor of management and a professor of economics at Cornell, and he is the author of over a dozen books, including the one we are going to talk about today, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. He is crazy smart, super sharp, and he is giving a damn in so many meaningful ways. Now, I read the book in preparation for our chat, and it's brilliant. I was going to give a review here, but decided I would just borrow a review from a Nobel laureate in economics, George Akerlof, instead. George had to say this about the book. Under the Influence describes a neglected goal for social policy to gently foster the wisdom needed individually and collectively to achieve the good life. Frank's own wisdom is on view in every paragraph of this book with its brilliant perspective on and solution to the problems of our times. After I interviewed Frank a few weeks ago, I saw that Ezra Klein had him on the Ezra Klein Show, one of the most listened to podcasts in the entire podverse. So I knew I had made a great decision to have Robert on the show. Well, I knew before that because our conversation is fantastic, but I really, really knew then that I had made a great decision. I learned a lot and was challenged in some really profound and beautiful ways from talking to Robert, and I wish the same for you in the few minutes ahead. Before we jump into the conversation today, I wanna give a huge shout out to this week's sponsor. Don't skip ahead, friends. By listening to the next few seconds and considering whether or not this is a company you'd like to check out, you are supporting the show in a massive way. Now, y'all know that I am very picky about who sponsors this show. And this episode of Let's Give a Damn is brought to you by my friends at RedCap, a fantastic Nashville-based company that makes workwear and uniforms. RedCap champions the men and women who are out there committed to making our communities thrive. Everything they make, from work shirts to coveralls, is crafted with purpose and on purpose. They're a no-bullshit company. What you see is what you get. And what you get is a group of people who genuinely give a damn about work and a life done right. From June 1 through July 31, you can get 20% off your first purchase at redcap.com using the promo code GIVEADAMN. That's redcap.com. Use the promo code GIVEADAMN from now until July 31 for 20% off. I also worked with them last month to interview some amazing damn givers that are beautifully contributing to their communities during this global pandemic. You can watch the entire From the Frontline series at redcap.com forward slash community. Alrighty, friends, are you ready for the show? 
Here's my conversation with the brilliant Robert Frank. Let's go. So let us uh, begin. We're going to talk mainly about your new book, Under the Influence. But we're, before that, we're going to talk about your body of work, which is extensive. And I, I've, I just want to rattle off in a few minutes some of the book titles and have you kind of uh, kind of abbreviate some of what you're trying to do there because I talk with people who give a damn. And it is very obvious that you give a damn by the, you know, the, the work that you've done in your past. Before we get to all of that, though, Robert, let's hear some of your story. I always want to begin with story because I think if you start describing the, the who, what, where that made you who you are today, like that really helps us figure out why you even, some, sometimes it helps figure out why you even end up doing the kind of work that you do. So what's your story? So a story. Okay. Uh, let me start uh, with graduating from college. I, I graduated from Georgia Tech in 1966 uh, when I was a senior. Uh, I had been a math major there, and uh, I, I think there must have been some deaths or sudden retirements or who knows what all happened, but uh, they asked me, an undergraduate, to teach a freshman math course. And uh, I had never taught anything before. Uh, I'm sure they would be embarrassed that I'm revealing to you that they had an undergraduate teaching a, a course for them. They must have been desperate, but but uh, <laughs> it turned out I, I really liked doing it, and I think think by what evidence I had, I did a good job uh, at it. And so I, I decided then and there that I wanted to be a teacher, uh, but, but to teach what? Uh, I didn't think I wanted to get a PhD in math. Uh, so the way we bought time in those days was to go in the Peace Corps. I went to Nepal for two years. Uh, I taught math and science in a village school there. Hmm. And I think uh, that that experience, well, it was quite common for Peace Corps volunteers to think they wanted to become development economists. Uh, you know, if you work in a developing sure. country, that's a pretty natural career path to think about. So I, I applied to economics graduate programs while I was in Nepal. And uh, I, I think the, the experience I had living there uh, really set the stage for everything I've worked on since then. Uh, uh, it, it was at the time, I, I don't think it is any longer, but at the time it was the poorest country that, that was on record in, in the UN data. They, they had the lowest per capita income, but it wasn't a miserable poor country. It was, it was just low income, rural, uh, basic, uh, uh, low material standard. And sure. And, and what I came away from, uh, that experience with was a sense that the, the drama of, of the human story is pretty much the same, even under, uh, radically different circumstances like that. You know, people, wake up in the morning, they have things on a to-do list, they're, they're, they have goals to accomplish. When they accomplish them, they feel good. When they, they don't, or when they lose, they feel bad. Uh, and so I think uh, my career as an economist, I graduated uh, with my PhD from Berkeley in 72, uh, has been shaped by trying to uh, follow up on some of the, those insights that I brought back from Nepal with me. Uh, and, and I think the, in many ways, the economic model is quite congenial to me. I, 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 I like the idea of efficiency for trying to get the most out of the resources that you have at your disposal. But I think 
where I see uh, economists missing a connection with the world is that uh, they assume a set of goals for people that, that just doesn't seem to describe people as I see mm. them. Uh, so, so we're just, we're trying to make our, our way. I think the, the Darwinian insight is a key one. Uh, the, I, I think of Darwin's central insight uh, as being life is graded on the curve. Uh, it's, it's not how much uh, uh, firepower you have. It's, it, it's how much you have relative to those with whom you're competing most directly. So it's not if you're bigger than everyone else in the universe or stronger or faster. It's, it's, it's where you stand in local hierarchies that really matters. Uh, and so much of my writing has been about that. Uh, and, and for me, I've, I felt lucky that I've gotten to pursue questions uh, that just made me feel curious. You know, the, the, one of the enduring mysteries in Darwinian evolution is how genuine honesty could survive in competition with, with nasty people. Uh, we, mm. we know that there's a big payoff to selfishness in the world. Uh, but at the same time, there's, there's really very compelling evidence that many people are not selfish in the narrow sense, and economists generally assume that they are. Uh, and so how, how do people who are actually pretty decent uh, when you come down to it, how do they manage to compete effectively against people who cheat when no one's looking and, and others? Uh, and, and so a lot of my work was about that. Uh, and it's a fairly simple story I stumbled on. It, it's that uh, if you're the kind of person who won't cheat when no one's looking, it's true you pass up opportunities for gain and that's, there's a penalty to that in the evolutionary contest. But but if other people can tell that's the kind of person you are, and never mind how they would, but that, that's sure. an interesting question by itself. If they can tell that's the kind of person you are, then suddenly you become an ex extremely valuable economic asset. There are all sorts of uh, ventures that can't be carried out successfully unless one person can trust another to do the thing that has to be done, even though he'd profit by not doing it. So... So yeah, I've, I've done uh, a fair amount of work on on that issue. Uh, the the most recent work uh, has has led me to to have more appreciation than I I did in the wake of having done that work for the role of rules and enforcement. Uh, you know, I think Aristotle's view of why people would be honest was a, a, a fairly interesting, simple story. It's, it's that societies uh, pass rules; they hire people to enforce them, and so. Lots of people obey the rules because they're afraid they'll be caught and punished if they don't do that. And, and in Aristotle's view, uh, that caused them over time to just get in the habit of obeying the rules. And they became, Interesting. in effect, a, a law-abiding person by temperament. And so when an opportunity would, would come to break the rules when you knew no one was looking, well, that's not who I am. I don't do that. You know, I'm, I'm sort of I'm wired up to be a different kind of person now. And, Interesting. And so uh, I think that really is an important part of the story if we didn't have rules and enforcement. Uh, but but the, the thing that really made me uh, focus on the importance of that is, is the notion that when people see other people cheating and getting away with it, not paying a penalty, they feel like chumps uh, when they see that. And there's a hmm. huge, uh, almost an explosive tendency to copy what people are doing. You feel like you, well, in a certain sense, you've been wronged uh, in a situation like that. Other people are getting 
paid uh, more than they deserve. And because uh, people see that more and more people do it and that bids the wage down uh, uh, that you would earn by cheating. And so if you don't cheat, you're actually paid less than you. You're, you're actually worth in the marketplace. So yeah, there, there's a huge role for con contagion in, in the decision of whether to cheat or not. So, so yeah, I've, I've come from thinking about the role of, of context and, and relative resource holdings in what we do and, and, and thinking about uh, honesty and other forms of motivation. It, it's been lucky to get to do that kind of stuff. I'm, I've you know, ne never had much interest in the excessive formalism that is the hallmark of much of modern economics. And, and having studied math, I was equipped to do that, but I didn't like doing that. And sure. so the fact that I got to avoid doing that, I think of as a lucky break for me. Yeah. So when, when I first encountered your work, right, and we set this, set this conversation, or before we set this conversation up, I, I loved the book title. I loved the book concept, but I was like, yeah, I'm not I don't I don't look out for economists to talk to because when you think of economists or you know mathematicians these people that work with numbers anal, data analysts you're not thinking this is going to be a really like amazing conversation and you pointed out something a few minutes ago that so many economists count on or think of people as selfish consumers right whereas as I look at your body of work and what you just shared over the last few minutes your if this if this is even a thing, you seem to be a very people focused, people centered economist. You're 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 not just looking at raw data and numbers. You're looking at you know the motivations behind why people do things. You're, you're, you've mentioned several philosophers so far, like and and several different like big thinkers. You're going outside of the normal like oh I I'm an economist so I read about the economy from other economists. You're looking at it from a it seems like from a very like big worldview, holistic kind of a thing, right? Uh, you know, I, that that doesn't quite resonate with how I think of what I do. I mean, I I, I think I'm more of a small think kind of person uh, who maybe stumbles onto some okay. things that lead to. So so mainly, uh, I, I I choose topics when I see something that puzzles me. Uh, if I see something that doesn't quite parse, I can't I can't come up with a cogent explanation. For it, then I, I I focus immediately on that and try to uh, uh, wrestle with it until I get something that's at least plausible sounding. Uh, what one of my uh, books was called "The Economic Naturalist." I don't know if you came across that one in yep. any of the stuff you you looked at, but it's an assignment I stumbled on years ago for my economics courses. I tell them. Uh, pose an interesting question based on something you've actually seen or experienced yourself out there in the world, and then try to use basic economic reasoning to craft a plausible answer to it. Uh, mm. doesn't, it it's not a PhD dissertation, 500 words maximum. Students have to write two of these during the term. So the first one's, you know, it's not so easy to come up with an interesting question. Yeah, it sounds easy, but it's not. Uh, and and many of the first round submissions uh, are not interesting. I tell them, you know, don't tell me how come we order out for pizza the night after we've been up studying for an exam all night. Uh, we're tired and it's harder to cook when, when we're tired. Oh, okay, sure. yeah, that's right, but it's not interesting. Not uh, interesting. I don't want to run down the hall and knock on my colleague's door and say, listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> So, so coming up with an interesting question is is the real battle in the assignment, and and a few of them managed to do it on the first try. But what's encouraging to me is that 
a, a remarkably high percentage of them uh, come up with a pretty interesting question on the second round. Uh, and so I think that's just uh, by far and away the, the best path to doing uh, research on any subject is just find something that puzzles you and fight your way through to a, a, an explanation that at least is consistent with the things you know to be true about the world uh, off the top of your head. And, and then, you know, I tell them it's, it doesn't have to be the last word. It's not the, the final answer to the question. Uh, think of, of it as a hypothesis suitable for further testing. And if you really wanted to do research about it, that is what you, you would go on to do as the next step. But, but yeah, I, th I think for me, I count myself incredibly lucky to have been able to work on topics that I've come up with more or less in that way. That's really, that's super helpful, actually, that pushback that you, you know, I, cause I'm, I am a very, we don't know each other from anything until 20 minutes ago, but I'm a, I'm a very big picture thinker, uh, always thinking of big ideas and big visions. And that by and large, when I hear somebody like you that has had such creative, that is asking very interesting questions, I automatically go to, well, he must be a big picture, big vision kind of person. And maybe the reason it, one of the pushbacks I've gotten from my mentors over the years, and I, I still consider myself pretty young. I've got lots of career to figure out. I don't feel settled at all, uh, even though I'm doing a hundred different things right now. But one of my mentors, one of their biggest pieces of feedback for me consistently, every time we meet, every time we're talking and wrestling through something is focus. Like, don't think so big picture about mm -hmm. everything. You will accomplish 10 times more if you can not, not even... Just, just focus. Like, just when you get something, when you get this idea that you think you should, you know, uh, really work out. One example right now is uh, my book agent and I are working on my first book, and I like to write. But the the problem I'm running into, and maybe this is just normal, but I think it does have something to do with my always wanting to figure it all out, right? In this big picture stuff, it is, it is so much work right now to sit down and focus on one book proposal so that we can refine it and sell it. It's because I want to do all the books right now, right? I, I think that I have several books in me, uh -huh. and you definitely have several books in you. You've already, what, 15 or something? And and I feel like I have several books, and so I just get going with all these ideas, and I want to fit them all in, and now they're bleeding into each other. And how do I focus on this one thing versus letting all mm -hmm. of my ideas? So that was really good and helpful pushback where you're like, no, actually, that's not how I see myself. I'm actually to boil it down, like I heard you say, like, I I'm focused and I'm asking these really good intentional questions and they're all re relatively within the same universe, right? You're not right. going all over the place. Yeah. I, I think a lot of my books have grown out of, uh, columns I've written for newspapers, uh, and, and there you really have to focus, you know, you've got sure. Anywhere from seven hundred to a thousand words, and and boy, it's a great exercise to figure out which words don't need to be there. Uh, and and so I think trying to make a very compact, tight argument uh, is a great way to start thinking about a book. Uh, you'll 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 write pieces like that. I don't know if if you do uh, work on that scale, but uh, if you don't, I'd encourage you to think about it because. Uh, you get feedback from it, uh, and you can you can tell pretty clearly from the kind of feedback you get whether the topic that you've chosen to write about is is of interest to people. If it's not, then probably uh, 
you know, you might want to keep casting about until you find something that is. Uh, it's yeah, fun to right. write about something if other people are going to be interested in it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the last articles I wrote uh, toward the end of last year um, got a lot of traction for the topic that I was writing about. First of all, it took, you you said it a couple minutes ago, like trying to figure out which words don't belong, right? They say, you know, you've got a thousand words or 12 or 1500 words, right? And I've got 3000 words, right? My first draft is so much bigger than it should right. be. And then the rest of the time is just refining it down. You know this very well. And, but once it was out there, like, yeah, I mean, actually that's where I got in touch with uh, this agent. Several agents reached out after that. And one that I really love that we're, I'm working with, like it came out of, you know, I've written a ton in the, I shouldn't say a ton. I've written several articles on different topics in the past. This one landed well. Mm-hmm. The, the, the traction that it got and the, the feedback that it got was like, oh, the amount of work you put into that paid off yeah. because it, it wasn't flipping. It wasn't just you writing a, an article on medium that nobody was editing. It was just out there. I've written a bunch of those in the past where it's just me talking about a topic. It goes nowhere because it might be, just, it's just too much. I didn't think about it really thoroughly uh, or it's just not interesting. And when you put in the work then, so yes, I'm, I'm learning a ton about it, about focus and I'm not very good at it, but uh, I'm glad, I'm glad you, kind of push back a little bit there. And I think um, I want to go back a couple minutes ago. You mentioned Nepal because I, again, I'm trying to figure out as you telling your story, what are some of the things that have made you who you are today? Do you think, was it the, the two years in Nepal that kind of shaped you to, to focus on some of the things that you, I know you said it didn't change like your career, career trajectory necessarily, but, but some of the things you write do uh, are really people focused, including this 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 book that I'm really excited to talk about in a few minutes with you, your latest one, which I totally believe in the thesis and in the book itself. I've seen it play out in my life and in the work that I do so much so. But was it Nepal or or, or were your 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 parents, or your siblings, or mentors? Like, what were some of the name a couple people or or things that happened that kind of shaped you to be this kind of person that does give a damn. Oh boy, that's a that's an interesting question. Uh, I was adopted as an infant. Uh, I I grew up. Both both of my adoptive parents were chiropractors in South Florida, uh, and so uh, and they divorced when I was five or six years old. I, I lived uh, that then for the next seven or eight years with my mother, and then moved in with my dad and stepmother. So I had, I had kind of a non traditional uh, growing up uh, and. And, and never felt like I was really very much like my adoptive parents uh, in, in physically or temperamentally. And so I was always interested in, in the, the biological basis of human nature and, and, mm. and, and read a lot about uh, that growing up and, and, and have continued to. So I, I think, uh, and then watching my own kids, I have four, four adult sons now, uh, they come into the, the world with a stamp on them. They're, they're each different. They're, they're uh, incredibly uh, uh, varied in, in the ways they see the world and react to it. And I think a lot of that is just uh, innate within us. Uh, there, there's a spin that we come out with that, that is extremely powerful. Of course, what we learn and what we experience along the way matters enormously too. Uh, and so there, there's a, a complex mix. Uh, I've, I've thought a lot about the role of luck in life. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we don't know why people do well. Mostly the people who succeed think it's because they were 
smart and they worked really hard uh, and they were creative. Uh, well, where do those traits come from? Uh, we don't know exactly, but we know they're some complicated mix of your genes and your upbringing. Uh, and, and that's not something you can claim uh, one whit of moral credit for. So, so sure. even, even if we were to, to say, yeah, you did it all by talent and hard work, uh, uh, if you had talent and the inclination to work hard, you're lucky, uh, basically. Uh, I think that's a little too simple because uh, working hard actually is difficult, even if you're the kind of person who, who has a lot of energy and wants to get up in the morning and get to work. Still, there are times when you'd rather not, and and the, you know you've been knocked down a few times. You don't feel like getting up, but somehow you summon the will to do it. Well, it's hard to do that, and I think if if you can claim credit for doing it, you'd be more likely to summon the energy to be able to do it. So, so, mm. so yeah, you should pretend that that's not luck. That's all you're doing uh, right. because, because it's adaptive to think about it that way. But, but basically there's an enormous amount of good fortune involved. If you yep. en end up in a spot that you feel good about, wow, you know, there's so many other paths your life could have taken that wouldn't have been nearly as, as, as satisfying to you as the one that you did take. Yeah. I mean, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this number. He says 400 trillion to one is the odds of you being born. <laughs> because if you think about the, the, not only just the sperm and, you know, connecting with the egg, but also just like five seconds before, five seconds yeah. after, or in any other day, like it's just be, just arriving on the earth is the biggest piece of luck. Call it a blessing, call it luck, call it whatever you want, good fortune, but like you shouldn't be here by any like statistical measure and yet you are right and and then and then you know you mentioned this hard work thing which i i i really want to read i'm going to get your books around that that topic and those topics because i think i've been i've been thinking about this a lot especially in these last 4 years we won't get into the political side of things but just politically the last 4 years there's been a lot of conversations about you know uh a lot, of, a lot more talk about billionaires and pl the plutocrats and a lot of more talk about should somebody be able to make that much money? And, you know, there's a lot of people defending it saying, well, they worked hard and they did this and they did that. And I'm like, well, I know I grew up in Guatemala. You want to talk about hardworking people? Like I know some people that work harder than, you know, Mark Cuban or uh, Jeff Bezos ever have with, for pennies a day. So it's not just hard right. work. It's also not just raw talent. Some of the most amazing let's just say musicians or painters that I know to pick those like artistic talents, they have like 500 followers on Instagram, you know, like they, nobody knows who they are. They're incredible. And yet no one knows who they are. Right. right. And you can pick, you can go into the, any field and find that, that person, whether it's an amazing doctor or economist or artist, like it's not just hard work. It's not just luck. There, there is, this tremendous amount of like right place, right time, being in the room where it yep. happens, good fortune that goes into you. And, 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 and then we've got to rest. Then we got to figure out, okay, now that I've been blessed, I'm lucky to be in the position that I'm in. What do I do with that? How then shall I live to make sure that I give other people a chance to get, the, to get there or do that? You know? Well, the first step is to recognize that you were fortunate to be in that position. Uh, it's, it's very well d demonstrated that if you recognize that, you become uh, very quickly grateful for the fact mm. that you're in that position. And, and I, I don't know if you've seen any of the research on gratitude. There's a, there's a lot of it now, but it's incredible the, the breadth and depth of the positive effects that come to people when they experience gratitude for the 
things that have happened to them in their lives. That makes them much more generous. It makes them much more liked by other people, much more likely to be chosen for the teams they want to be on. There's just a a whole broad swath of benefits that come your way if you have the wit to feel grateful for your situation. Yeah, that's really beautiful. What's your, what's, again, you've written a bunch of books. As I was uh, looking at Amazon, right? I typed in your name, looking at the books you've written. It kept saying like Robert Frank, Robert Frank. And I was like, well, maybe it's a different author, you know, you know, cause a lot of times if it's the same author, you'll show up in the same list. Sure enough, like it looks like 12 or 15 books that you've uh, written. Do you have a favorite uh, that you've written in terms of like how, maybe not how it did sales wise or whatever, but like you felt really good about what you're able to do with that book? Uh, yeah, I think the one that uh, I have the warmest feeling about is uh, one entitled Passions Within Reason. The subtitle mm-hmm. is The Strategic Role of the Emotions. That was the book that tackled the question of how genuine honesty might emerge in a bitterly competitive environment. Interesting. And yeah, I've, I've, I've feel like writing that book, I had to, I had to learn uh, more almost than, than any other book I've written. Uh, and it was exciting to work through. There were a couple of dead ends that I, I went down in the process of writing it. It was a big struggle to get past one or two of them. And, and I've just felt like, wow, I really learned a lot tackling this subject. So yeah, that, now, that was the book I, I think I look back with, with the greatest fondness. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Now that's an that's a 1988 book. Yes. Have you and you've written many books since then? Have you? What's your journey been like? And I promise you, we're going to get to your book, uh, your new book, because <laughs> I'm so excited to do it. But I, I, you're 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 just endlessly fascinating. The things that you've written about, I've maybe we'll have to do part two and three of this someday. But um, like, have you, what's been your experience as a writer? Like growing again, that was uh, 22 years ago at this point that you wrote. No, 30, 30 years ago that you wrote that book. Um, like what have, have you seen yourself? Have you felt yourself become a better writer, you know, leading up to this, to this book, or have you always been kind of naturally inclined to write? Uh, I, I always did well, uh, in, in written work. Uh, and, and each of my sons is a, a gifted writer. I would say, uh, their, their mother is a gifted writer. Her mother, uh, was, wow. a, uh, was a gifted writer, and so was her father. So I think there is a, an inclination to write that that some people have more than others. So 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 yeah, it's always been something that I like to do. But uh, really, it's a craft more than anything. You and I think writing a newspaper column for many years and having to make word limits was uh, was probably one of the most useful steps in my development as a writer. You know, the, the I mentioned in my preface to the most recent book, the the E.B. White uh, writer's manual, where he he recounts uh, Strunk's dictum to the students, uh, uh, one of whom was E.B. White. Uh, he said, omit needless words, omit needless words, omit needless words. He said it three times. Uh, and and obviously, uh, you only need to say it once. You could omit some some words if you didn't say it the, the second and third time, but uh, you, you don't want to always omit words. Sometimes if you don't say it a couple of, of different ways, people won't get it or they won't remember it. But, but basically getting rid of the, the needless words really is an important 
skill to, to hone as a writer. And I think writing with a word limit is one of the best uh, crucibles to, to gather that skill. So yeah, I, I think I've gotten better. I, I could not have written the most recent book had I not written each of the other books. Uh, sure. But, but I worked hard on all of them. I, I, I did the best I could at the time with each of them. I think I, I, I'm better now than I was in the early going, but, but I don't look back and, and read excerpts from those books and say, oh, uh, I don't feel embarrassed. I, I think oh, that still sounds okay to me. That's beautiful. No, that's really fun. I, I recently, one of my projects, one of my clients um, that I work with, I had to rewrite. He's a, he's a well-known speaker and I had to rewrite his onstage bio that they'd read before he comes up to speak. And obviously no one's speaking right now because of the, the pandemic, but, and he had me rewrite this thing. And I, that omit needless words, like I went to town with that and really crafted this. I mean, I spent just on a bio I spent like four hours writing this bio and he had one that was like, it was fine, but I, I rewrote it. And when he finished, he like, he called me up after he got it. And he said, I just read this aloud. He said, I've never read anything out loud about myself that sounded this good and this like fluid. And then he did go speak to, uh, at one event using that bio. And he said, they, they usually just do like a couple lines from it. And she said they loved the bio so much they read the entire, it's like, it was like 50 something seconds, like read aloud. Mm. And instead of just doing the quick, like, Hey, this is so-and-so welcome into the stage. They read the whole thing. Uh. And I attribute it to that. Um, I did, I did kind of, I, for most of it, I did omit needless words. And then some of it, there was kind of like using extra words to really accentuate, mm -hmm. accentuate certain points. So um, that's really fun. I, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about your like, process as a writer because I hope to do more writing in the future. Okay, let's get to your new book, which I'm so thrilled about on multiple levels. Um, and those will come out as we're talking about it. You begin the book by sharing this quote from George Washington, 19 or 1780. Example, whether it be good or bad, has a powerful influence. And of course, your new book is called Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. Before we jump into the contents of it, and it's been a it's been a it's been a joy to like read this book uh, because it's challenged me and it's also encouraged me. It's also confirmed so many things that I feel like I'm working toward myself, as my family, my company. Let's give a damn. Uh, lots of conversations happening on the climate crisis that we're in, and oddly enough, peer pressure and how that works into it. So this is all just a wonderful like serendipitous moment for me. How did the book come about? Again, you're writing tons of books. Your last one was just four years ago. So what was the impetus for writing a book, uh, not just peer pressure, but one focused on uh, how it could have a, a tremendously positive effect on our climate crisis? Yeah, this book, like several earlier ones, as I mentioned earlier, uh, arose out of a, a, a newspaper column. I think I published it in January of 18. It could have been then. Uh, it was about the question of regulating smoking. And the, the thesis was that uh, although we regulated smoking on the, on the grounds that we needed to protect innocent bystanders from the harms caused by secondhand smoke exposure, there had just been some studies out of Japan documenting that, that if you were exposed to secondhand smoke, you're more likely to get certain illnesses. That in fact, uh, that 
the the damage from secondhand smoke exposure was minuscule compared to the damage that you suffered from actually being a smoker. Hmm. If you don't think it's the government's job to protect you from harm yourself, I think that was the regulatory bias that that led us uh, to where we were uh, when those regulations were passed. No, we can't protect you from harm yourself. That's your job. Uh, if we're going to tell you you can't do what you want to do, it's because of uh, the John Stuart Mill harm principle. Uh, he said the only legitimate reason for the state to rein you in is to prevent you from causing harm to others. And so now they had an excuse. Uh, if you smoke, you're going to cause harm to others by exposing them to secondhand smoke. Well, set aside the question of whether you harm yourself. Of course you do. Uh, and I think the, the, the question of whether we would want the state or some other entity to intervene against things we do when we were young that compromise the quality of our lives when we're older. Uh, that's a more interesting question the behavioral scientists now know than when John Stuart Mill was writing more than 100 years ago. But set that question to one side. The real harm you do if you smoke is you make other people more likely to smoke. So suppose you have mm. a daughter, you're worried she's going to become a smoker. It doesn't make any difference uh, to, to assess the risk of that happening by knowing that she's a science fiction buff, that she's a, a Minnesota Twins fan, that, that she's a, a, a star in math. None of that tells you anything. What you need to know is the fraction of her friends who smoke. And it's a huge effect. There's no other effect nearly as big. If that fraction goes from 20% to 30%, then she becomes 25% more likely to become or remain a smoker as a result of that. Uh, there's no other effect remotely that big. Hmm. And so if you smoke, you harm other people by making them more likely to smoke. Now, some people pushed back on that comment. Well, that's their problem. They have, they have agency. They have the responsibility to, to decide which peers to copy and which ones uh, to avoid. Uh, okay, I like the sentiment that motivates that objection. But what about all the people in the smoker's life? Uh, uh, it, it, I don't know if you have kids. Uh, if and when you have kids. Uh, you, you are never going to sit. No one's ever going to hear you say, I hope my kids grow up to be smokers. What a bizarre thing for any parent to say. Every parent hopes his kids will grow up to be healthy. And, and, and part of that is, is to encourage them not to smoke. Uh, they invest quite a bit in that effort. Uh, I certainly did with my kids. I, I did everything I could to encourage them not to smoke. You can't push too hard or you'll make them more likely to smoke. You know, they'll need to de declare their independence by smoking. But if they fail to achieve that goal, don't they suffer some real injury? It's hard to measure, of course, but it's a real in injury nonetheless. And so what we know is that if more people smoke, millions more parents will fail to achieve the perfectly legitimate goal and laudable goal of raising their kids to be non-smokers and will be injured by that. And so my claim in the book is that that, completely satisfies Mill's harm principle. Can we tell you not to smoke because you're, uh, it harms others? Yes, it harms others by making them more likely to smoke. And if you don't care about the harm that causes to them, 
then care about the harm that it causes to their parents uh, who have no recourse. There's nothing they can do to avoid that harm. So, so that's the, the thesis of the book in the nutshell. Shell, the psychologists have long said it's the situation, not the person by which they mean if we see somebody do something strange and we want to know why did she do that, uh, our tendency is to think, well, what kind of traits of personality does she have? What, 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 what's her character like? Uh, that's generally not the right path to, to follow when you're looking for an explanation. You should really focus on the social situation that surrounded her when she acted. And so we've known that for a long time. I think most psychologists even underestimate how strong that effect is when it applies to themselves. Uh, yeah, they, they think other people are influenced by the sure. social situation, but, but me, no, I'm not, I'm not so much influenced by it, they think. We are all influenced by it. And I, as I tried to explain in the book, that's not such a bad thing, actually. Uh, but the, the, the other obvious truth uh, is that the causal arrows go also in the other direction. What we do influences the social environment. The social environment influences us for good and ill, for ill in the case of smoking, but also for good sure. in many cases. But what's the social environment? It's a consequence in the aggregate of what we do. So the smoking rate, what's that? That's the number of us who smoke divided by the total number of us. And yet none of us worries about whether when we smoke will encourage other people to smoke because we don't have a very big effect on the smoking rate. We're, we're a tiny atom in a big sea. So, so rational people generally don't worry about their effect on the social environment. But wouldn't the world be better if they did? And so the question I pose in the book is, are there practical ways that we could encourage people to act as if they cared about their effect on the social environment. And if, if there were those ways, uh, maybe we should consider adopting them. And as I try to explain, there are a host of ways that we could do that. And, and most of them wouldn't involve any great sacrifice of liberty or quality of life or any such thing. So, so I think it's, it, it's a, I call it a policy greenfield. Yeah, maybe you know the, the entrepreneurial term of an investment greenfield. So there are all mm -hmm. these products and services that never mm -hmm. could have existed until the iPhone came out. Yeah, uh, And then investors were stumbling all over themselves to bring them to market, uh, uh, all these opportunities that, that suddenly you, you could take advantage of. In the policy domain, I think there's something quite similar. You know, We've never taken seriously the fact that peer behavior is such a powerful influence on people and that it might be shapeable, moldable to our advantage through simple steps of public policy. Going back a couple steps, you mentioned kids. The, the most profound thing that I've ever done for myself is have kids uh, for a number of reasons. You said you had four, you said you four. have four sons? Four. Yeah. Like, I have learned so much about myself and about the human race and condition and who we are and how things happen. And the, the peer pressure thing, again, I've never experienced that more than with kids. You know, you, you, you get upset. This happens occasionally. And every time I kick myself and have to get down on both knees and ask my kids for forgiveness, but you know, they get, they get a little crazy, right? One yells at the other sibling and the way that I get them, you know, I come in from a long day of work or from back from a trip or whatever, and 
you know, they're yelling. Just and it doesn't need they don't need to yell. Like, why are you yelling? That's a that's a talk situation. And the way that I get them to not yell at each other is by yelling at them to or, <laughs> maybe not yell, but raising my voice. Stop yelling at your sister. You need to talk that through. And they're looking at me, probably thinking, what the hell, dad? Like you're <laughs> over here just like yelling at me. And, you know, that happens enough times and they're learning now, you know, they're yelling at each other more often if I keep going down that path. And I, and we've had stages like that in our parenting where it's, we really have to reevaluate and say, these kids are watching everything we're doing. They're emulating it and they are being, you know, there is, there is a peer pressure emulation because of course they're looking up to us. They're looking to us for direction. So who's pressuring them to behave certain ways? Well, it's us on, in both ways to have good behavior, but also when we're not thinking about it well, we're pressuring them to do bad things by not responding in consistently to the kinds of things they're doing. So I, I, I just wanted to make that comment that I've never, I still have a lot to learn in terms of peer pressure, right? But it's, 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 I've never seen it more real than, mm -hmm. than right now. Um, yeah, about how people are watching what we're doing. Right. And they will, if we make a persuasive enough argument, whether consciously or unconsciously, uh, if we make a persuasive enough argument, they're going to follow our lead, especially these little kids who are five, six, and seven. You know, like they're just, they're just waiting for us to take the lead and tell them what to do. And that's just one. I mean, I've, I've royally uh, screwed myself up as a parent sometimes, but like, but that was one case where like, I, I think about that all the time. And I tried to, uh, I've used that as an example to teach myself, like, Nick, you've got to pay attention. They're watching right. everything, you know? Um, so what are some other, what are some other ways? Uh, I know that you talked about the smoking and then we've kind of parlayed that into the main point of the book, which is the climate crisis. Right. Like, Let's talk about this peer pressure thing, right? Because we're in we're, we're in kind of an interesting time where you have maybe more than other countries, other kind of advanced, technologically advanced, uh, intellectually advanced countries in the world. Ours, for some reason, I could be wrong, but our country, there seems to be an, a, a huge number of people that don't even believe that there is a climate crisis, right? So we're not talking about, you know, uh, any number of other things we're talking about. I mean, I just heard it yesterday. Very smart. Um, I guess smart is the correct word to use them. There's, I saw this interview with Candace Owens. She's a young, um, uh, you know, uh, communicator leader in her space. Very conservative. And she, on the Joe Rogan show, said, I do not believe in climate change. I believe the climate's always changing. And she talked, she gave the, yesterday the weather was hot and now it's cold today. The climate's always changing. But she she said, and she's a smart, kind of learned person, and she said, I don't believe in climate change. So, And she is representative of kind of a, a big swath of Americans that also believe that it's not happening. So how do you, beyond having like a common understanding that climate crisis is happening, okay, let me pressure you, let me peer pressure you into some simple things, and we'll talk about those simple things in a second. How do we, even, how do, we do that in a country where millions of people don't even believe it's happening? You know, and until recently, I think that would have been a, a much bigger problem than it is today. I mean, it wasn't very long ago that uh, we saw a, a Republican senator bring a snowball into the, the Senate as proof that climate change wasn't happening. It was late February in Washington, D.C., 2015. Yep. Uh, 
normally the cherry blossoms are, are about to burst forth then, but but some years there are cold snaps and it showed. Sure. So this was his proof. He brought a snowball in. I, I think we would not see him do that today. He 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 was ridiculed for doing it when he did it, but I think the the extreme weather events, uh my two youngest sons, they're both over 30, uh, neither one of them has ever been alive during a month whose average temperature was cooler than the average temperature for that same month during the entirety of the 20th century. Mm. The, 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 the graphs of temperature uh, over, over you know, 19 of the last 20 years uh, have been the hottest uh, years on record uh, going back as far as we, we have even tree ring records to, to judge before their weather services. The, the evidence is so clear now, the frequency of storms, the intensity of them, the droughts, the wildfires. Uh, I think the, the climate conversation has pushed past uh, the point you've just described. Now we're at a point where we, we most of us, and, and you found an example yesterday of somebody who's not in this set, but, but most of us now say, yes, this is a problem. Yes, uh, we need to do something about it. But, but nobody has a clear sense that there's anything we can do about it or that uh, if there were such a, a thing that we could do about it, that it would be at acceptable costs and the like. So I think that's where the conversation needs to move forward now. I th and I think there are uh, very productive ways for it to move forward. There are things we can do about it. Uh, I, I listened to Ezra Klein's conversation with Saul Griffiths. I don't know if you listen to his podcast, but it's it's one of the good ones. Yes. Uh, and and Saul Griffiths is probably the the he's he's the most knowledgeable person I've come across about the engineering details of what it would actually take to get uh, the carbon dioxide emissions level down to to, to zero and maybe even uh, to suck some sure. CO two out of the air. Uh, it's it's absolutely doable. It would mm. require a massive mobilization akin to what we did during World War II. Uh, that was trillions of dollars a year in today's money. But uh, but we did it, and the country wasn't unhappy while we were doing it. We were engaged. We were uh, we were uh, locked in a battle against a, an adversary that we knew we had to had to defeat. So we know we can do it. And then the question is, how will we pay for it? You know, it's not enough that the rich people install solar panels and buy Teslas. You know, it's got to be everybody doing it or, or else we won't get the emissions level to where they need to be. So it's going to be a massive uh, amount of money. But because of the ways we influence one another in terms of how we spend our money, it's very easy to see that there is massive waste in our spending patterns. And not only that there is massive waste, but that there would be quite simple steps we could take to deflect the waste that's now going down a rat hole and steer it instead into, well, there are two things we need to do. One is to decarbonize the economy. That's probably the biggest threat we've faced. But pandemics uh, are a more immediate threat and we you know the private healthcare model doesn't invest in surge capacity for hospitals there weren't lots of unused ventilators sitting around uh, ready to be deployed in an emergency that's the you know the private business model doesn't encourage that we weren't investing as heavily as, as we had reason to believe we ought to have been in vaccine research and the like but but there's money available to do those things if we recognize where the waste is and how to channel those wasted dollars into the 
more productive dollars where they need to go. Yeah, that's super helpful. You mentioned Ezra Klein, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, I'm kind of upset at him all the time because he's like two years younger than me and like 50 times <laughs> smarter. But um, that's a conversation for another day. But his, uh, his wife, Annie Lowry, um, who is also, have you read anything by Annie? Yes, I, yeah. I know Annie. Yeah. Yeah. So she'll be on my podcast soon. Oh, good. To UBI? Talk, so, yeah. To talk about her book, Give People Money, which I'm, I'm a huge, I mean, I was a big supporter of, I still am, but he's not running anymore, of Andrew Yang. I thought Andrew did a really excellent job. Um, he, he was, I think Andrew was what America wanted. They wanted someone that wasn't a career politician but they also needed what they didn't know they needed was someone who is also uh, smart, intelligent, wise, um, and measured in how uh, you know they they speak and act and make decisions. Um, I, I'll send you uh, something I've written about UBI. Uh, I'd love to yeah, read I'm, it. I'm 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 actually uh, in favor of a kind of a hybrid, a very very small UBI, but then supplemented by a. a, a an open offer to perform useful public jobs. Oh, interesting. See, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Maybe not. It, it, maybe it's not Annie's version of UBI or Andrew Yang's version of UBI, but I, I think it's inevitable with what we have coming right now. This, this technological technology, technology and work revolution that's uh, coming. There are so many people. I just interviewed this wonderful woman uh, for this other, I'm I'm hosting a web series for this other company, a client of mine. And one of the people I interviewed was front. Li- she's a frontline worker during this pandemic. She's a trucker, and she runs this. She leads this group of women truckers. There's like five thousand of them, in this like predominantly male. And I, and one of the questions I had for her was like, Are you, are you like, what are you thinking about the future? Like Tesla is already driving trucks across the country unmanned. Um, uh, I think Budweiser did a few trucks across the country, you know, unmanned, like it's, we're a few years away. Like, and she, you know, she was very positive and like, no, we'll figure it out and everything. But I'm like, man, there are from farming to, you know, any, any production line that's gone, uh, truckers, like we're talking millions and millions of jobs. Like we have to think of something and we're seeing it right now, Robert, like with, with this pandemic, it is, it is accentuating. It yep. is highlighting so many inefficiencies from healthcare, which our healthcare does not work. It's tied to 39 million jobs that were just lost. Um, you know, income inequality, all of these things, like we're still at 725, uh, an hour minimum wage. When if, if, if you would, if you looked at the trajectory of our economy, it should be like 22 or 23 mm-hmm. at the very least. And we're still stuck at 725. Like we're, working people to death for jobs yeah. they don't like and we're paying them next to nothing to do it. Yeah, no, it's it's in need of some work. So, uh, I mean, and that's and that is speaking of UBI, like that is one I, I'm very interested in these things that that are happening right now including climate crisis stuff that I'm trying to figure out. I'm really glad we got connected on this conversation because I am leading a, you know, I have a company, let's give a damn. We do uh, social impact consulting. I'm writing a book. I speak. I do all these things under this company, but with the podcast and our in our online platform with social media and otherwise, I'm constantly trying. I'm constantly getting people asking me, "How do I convince psych myself into giving a damn? How do I convince myself to get out of this stupor I'm in because life is hard, right? And and then how do I get my friends and neighbors? Like the question comes all the time. We had a um, Nashville uh, kind of got a double whammy right before this pandemic. We had a, an F4 tornado come through. 
It wreaked havoc on our city. And we were one week into the cleanup for that when they started telling people to stay home because of the pandemic. So there's a lot of places in Nashville that are still suffering and hurting because we couldn't we couldn't keep doing a lot of the stuff. Anyway, when the, when the hurricane when the tornado came through on March three, I am kind of this like doer go getter. Um, I I just went out. I just went out and started looking for stuff to do. I don't kind of wait for permission to do anything. And I linked up with some friends and we were figuring out this project. One of my friends, three of his businesses were demolished by the tornado. So we're with him helping him out. And I just started like, I started on Instagram, just kind of updating people on what, what I was doing, but also saying like, Hey, if you want, like I'm here, um, I'm going to start something. I don't know what it is right now, but I'm going to get to work. Do you want to help me? Do you want to join up with me? And by the end of the day, we had 80, 80 something people in a WhatsApp group. Wow. And we were like, and we were rocking and rolling. We, I started, and, and what was cool about that moment though, is I learned a lot about um, stepping up and wh- why people are always looking for somebody to do it first, right? Like so many people don't take that initiative, whether it's climate crisis or otherwise, they're waiting for somebody to show them how to do it. But then once they get going, I learned so much about my human fellow Nashvillians during this project, because all of a sudden, I thought, man, okay, I've got, I've got a family at home still. I have work to do. I have clients to, that need me, but I'm going to be out here doing this as long as I can. And now I have 80 people that are going to be looking to me for direction. That's not how – like once I kind of cast the initial mm-hmm. vision, and they were saying, what are we supposed to do? And I'm like, friends, there's no rule book. Like a tornado just came through. You just look for something to do, and you either lead the effort or link up with someone who started leading the effort. And within one day, I didn't have to lead anything. I was back to leading myself and helping other people because they were all just like, Mm -hmm. I looked behind me and nobody was following me anymore. They were all off doing their thing now. And so um, I learned a lot through that situation, even as a 36 year old about peer pressure and taking the first, taking the initiative in that circumstance and then watching people kind of get the energy themselves to get to work. Yeah, I think experiences like that uh, and, and thinking about the dynamics of what drives uh, behavior like that uh, is really what changed my mind about the efficacy of individual action in the climate domain. Uh, as, a, as an economist, I was always skeptical of, I don't know if you use the term conscious consumption, uh, it's, it's the term that uh, some climate advocates use for individual steps to reduce your carbon footprint. So you drive sure. a little less often, you eat less meat. Uh, things where you, at some sacrifice or cost to yourself, uh, take a step that reduces the the amount of CO2 you emit into the atmosphere. And I think economists and and many climate scientists too have have been long skeptical of of that as a of, as a distraction. Really, um, what we really need to do is invest massively in green energy infrastructure, we need to adopt a very stiff carbon fee and dividend system. If we don't take big steps like that, that are going to really change the course of the ship of the big producers and the, and the, and the gross energy use patterns, then we're not going to get out of the mess that we're in. And so individual action, well, it's not going to matter much. And so don't get distracted by that. That was always my view too, but I've completely changed my mind about that Mm. after working on this project. And, and really it's a couple of things that led me there. Well, the, the less important, but it's still a big one is that 
when you take action, it's true that the effect of that is small in, in relationship to the size of the whole problem. Certainly it's negligible even. If you didn't do it, the world would be the same as if you did do it. If everybody else did it and you didn't do it, uh, well, that would be good, but that would be good whether or not you did it. So the, the fact is when you take one of these steps, uh, I think one of the clearest examples would be installing solar panels. There's a, a great pioneering study that was done early in the adoption cycle where the authors were able to, to estimate that if a new addition, uh, a new installation took place at time zero, then within four months on the average, there would be a second one caused by people having seen that first one and reacted hmm. to it by by deciding to install one of their own. That, that would be over and above any other installations that would have occurred independently of that first one. So af after four months, you've got not one, but two installations. After eight months, you've got four. After a year, you've got eight. After two years, you've got 32. One, one new guy puts it up one person. on and you got 32 after, but that, that's not the end of it. You know, you got each of those people talking to others in other zip codes, relatives around the country, friends. And so they're installing panels because the first guys did. And, and so it fans out. So the, the indirect effects, the things that happen because others saw what you did and decided to take similar action, those are huge compared to the effect of your own action. But that's that's the small part of the, the reason I changed my mind. The, the bigger part is that when you do stuff like that, when you ride your bike instead of driving, eat less meat, that changes who you are as a person. And I think here too, economists, we tend to assume that people come into the world with fully formed identities and preferences. No, that's not the way it works at all. We become no. who we are gradually over the course of a lifetime. You're, you're, you're not who you were a week ago. And you become who you are by what you do. Uh, uh, that was Aristotle's view. We are what we repeatedly do. It's been distilled by modern people writing about him. Uh, and so when you take these steps, you if you weren't a climate advocate to begin one, you gradually become one. Or if you were one, you become more of one. And the significance of that is that it makes you much more likely to vote for politicians who will enact stiff carbon fee and div dividend systems, who will, who will vote for the investments that we need to make to decarbonize the economy. And so it's, it, it's not only not a distraction from the policies we need to adopt, it's, it's a positive step toward getting them adopted. I've seen that happen, Robert, over the last few years. Um, in our family specifically. So you don't know this about me or us, but our, I help people with a lot of different issues and topics, right? Because of the work that I do, I have all sorts of people come on the show, but our family, like our personal issue is addressing the climate crisis in the ways that we can. Uh, everything from, I guess it's been uh, five, six years ago, we became vegetarian. Oh. And so our kids, our son, who's five, who's has never had meat and our daughters, you know, had it a few times when they were toddlers, but didn't have it a lot. So they don't miss it at all. And we've been able to properly uh, educate them and tell them why we're doing it. This is not just a, this is not a, it's not a, it's not even a financial choice, like great, like 
grass-fed beef is expensive. It's not even about that. We did that for the last year that we were not that we were uh, uh, when we were eating meat was we got our beef from a from a farm down the road. You know, we split a we split a beef with some friends and we got our eggs from a farm. Whatever, like so it wasn't. It's not even that. It is it is directly tied to we feel better not just about ourselves, like health-wise. We feel tremendously better since becoming vegetarian, but we, we feel better about what we're able to do. And we have we have convinced family members. Uh, I oh. come from a, lar- a large family. Tw- I have 11 siblings, 12 kids. Several of them are uh, either like 75% vegetarian or 100% vegetarian now. Um, we, have, we also compost, and we've gotten several of our neighbors and our friends in on the composting thing. You know, little in 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 the it's it's little things, right? Like months ago, a year ago, we switched from regular trash bags to compostable bags. It's it's an easy fix. I you know I know that not everybody can do that; they're a little more expensive, but it's not that much more expensive to buy biodegradable compostable bags instead of using these plastic ones, which will be here, you know forever and a day from now. And do you feel that those changes in your own behavior have uh, pushed you politically in, in, in terms of a greater willingness to support candidates who will adopt policies? That will a thousand percent. Yeah. I, I, in my own case, I've, I've felt uh, much more inclined to make donations to candidates who I think will adopt the policies that, that I feel we need to adopt to get out of the, this mess. And, and it's really uh, of such a dramatic step you can take by doing that. You know, if, if you look to your neighboring state, Virginia, you know, that's a pretty middle of the road state politically. They're, they were red, they're trending blue, they're, they're, they're not uh, radical wild, wild-eyed liberals by any stretch no. of the imagination. And they flipped both houses of the state legislature in their last round of elections, 2019. And just a month ago, they adopted one of the most ambitious decarbonization uh, laws of any uh, government anywhere. They're going to be carbon-free by uh, a, a, a relatively early date. And, uh, you know, that's going to require a lot of doing. But if you vote for the right people, you can make big change happen in a hurry. Um. On that same note, I'm looking something up here because I wanna I wanna read it off and see if let me see if I can find it here. Um, so on that note of the politicians, so what happens if it's easy to get discouraged um, if you look at what's happening at a at a very high federal level, right? Like just uh, was it yesterday, the day before, like more deregulations happened, yes. you know, giving giving companies and corporations and organizations more leeway to do whatever the hell they want regardless of the effect that it has on our climate and on other things. But there's still, so I guess what I'm asking is there are so many things that are enacted at a, at a federal level that in some ways do affect what's happening within the States, but not all the time. So how do we, how do we, how do we pay attention to what's happening at a federal level? Cause that matters. It does matter, but also really see the importance of, Focus, like so many people think their one time to get involved in elections is presidential election every four years. And they forget that there are, you know, everything from council members to mayors to, you know, Senate seats to House seats. Like there's so much there. are, In other words, the thing I was trying to look up was there between between president and House and all these different seats. There are hundreds of seats up for grabs this year. Hundreds. 
and most of them are going to go fairly unvoted for. Like it'll be a small number of people yeah. actually yeah. casting their vote. So how do we keep those intention where like, yeah, it sucks certain things that are happening at a federal level, um, but a lot of that doesn't matter, but it still does. You see like the tension there. Yeah, you've you got to keep many balls in the air at once. Uh, there are some pivotal Senate contests coming up. Uh, and who controls the Senate is probably the biggest uh, determinant of how much progress we're going to make in the next four years, undoing some of the damage you just described. Hmm. If the, the Senate flips, uh, there'll be a huge difference in the policies that we adopt going forward in the next four years. Uh, but you're right. Those other uh, slates of office holders at the state level, at the county level, at the uh, local level, that's all all important in building a bench for the future and in enacting policies that matter to each of us even now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the, the levels of government uh, up and down the ladder all matter. Yeah. That's super helpful. I'm trying to do that. We've, I, I mentioned it when every chance I can to, for people to get involved, they should know, I mean, they should know who their council women and men are. You should know those names just yeah. as much as you should know your, who the, who your, who your, congressmen and women are who your senators are like you got to know what's happening next door just as much as you know what's happening because those are all they're not the, the, you know your mayor is not affecting what's happening even at a state or national level but it's affecting your yeah. you it's affecting sidewalks it's affecting you know if there are coal plants still you know or if there are companies that aren't uh helping the environment in your zip code like that that matters my wife was a uh Ithaca city councilwoman for some years, and it was a joy to watch them. They were all smart. There, there are 10 of them on the council. They, they would have long heated discussions and, and you, you, you know, watching them that their aim was to get the right answer. They weren't posturing. They weren't engaged in partisan pissing contests. They, they were just trying to get the, the right version of, of the statute enacted to benefit the community. And, and, that's what government can and should do. Government has not been doing that. Uh, yeah. But in other countries, government does do that. Look at New Zealand. Look at Canada, Canada and uh, the Nordic countries. You know, there, there, there are many governments uh, who are viewed by their citizens as delivering good value for their tax dollars. They've, they're, they're thought to be above corruption by and large. Uh, to have... To have a bad government is a curse, uh, and if you if you bash the government all the time, if you if you say government's the problem, not the solution, it's hard to get good people to go work in the government, and that's not in our interest, as we've discovered to our pain in, in recent months, especially. Yeah, we shouldn't be um, super agreement with everything you just said, and we shouldn't be like so much of me wants to not pay attention to what's happening in politics because it's just so it's just so hard just to just to read and deal with and navigate it and what's true and what's not and what about this and what about that but the reality is more of us should be taking the posture that uh, agree with them or not more of us should be taking the posture of the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's and the Ilhan Omar's like even at a young age saying no I want in like I want in now I want to grow up in this I don't want to I don't want to just say like I don't want just want to shit on government I want to actually be you know, be the, not to use the kind of cliche, but like be the change that I wish to see in government instead yeah. of, instead of rejecting it and saying, just forget about it. We'll, we're just going to, we're going to do it on our own here. You know, like we got to go in there and make the change. Well, that's why behavioral contagion is a really uh, useful frame for thinking about all of this, because I think one of the, 
one of the things that discourages people from getting involved is the sense that they won't be able to make a difference. Yep. And, and the fact is, uh, you know, I, I, I have a slide of Greta Thunberg uh, at age 14. She's sitting uh, uh, with her back up against a school building, hugging her knees. She's got a sign announcing some climate rally that nobody came to. Uh, and I think when she started out, she, she, she probably hoped she would have some influence on events, but uh, she, she can't possibly have imagined that she would shape hundreds of millions of people's lives the way she has over the course of the last couple of three years. And, and the, the power of example so magnifies the little things that you do. Uh, and I think we, it's very hard to appreciate the leverage that you have now, you know, sometimes things fizzle out and nothing much happens, but sure. But it's, it's like having a lottery ticket, you know, I'll, I'll take a small step, somebody will see it, they'll take a, a similar step that'll influence two others, and then four others, and, and, and you'll see an explosion. Uh, and so get involved, you know, there's, there's great pleasure in being involved just for the, the experience of it. But it's, it's not pissing in the wind, it's, it's, it's likely to have an impact. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's just, there, that is, that's a whole other conversation around, like, it, it, in this day where everyone wants to become TikTok famous or Instagram famous or have like a viral thing happen to them, people are trying too hard, right? And after 10, 15, 20 times of trying to do something and it doesn't work, we get discouraged because our motivation was wrong. Our reason for doing it was wrong. Right. Greta Thunberg had no idea anyone was watching her. It's not like she filmed a secret camera crew to take those photos and to like keep coming back every Friday for Climate Fridays. And like she had, people love to shit on Greta because she's so young and she's talking so authoritatively. I'm all about it because sure, maybe she says something every once in a while. It's like, eh, you know, do you, do you actually know about that? That's not the point. I don't care. We all mess up. We all say things that we shouldn't. And we all step into territory that maybe we shouldn't sometimes. That's not the point. The point is, what you just said about this contagious, like this, this, the contagious nature of this is we have to be true to who we are and we have to seek to do good regardless of whether anyone ever uh, uh, follows us in doing it or not. I think of uh, uh, Yusra Mardini, who, who is an Olympic swimmer. She and her sister, uh, she was on the, she was on the Olympic, the refugee Olympic team last Olympics. Right. And she uh, I'm interviewing her next month. I'm so excited because she um, and her sister, pulled their refugee boat for hours. We're talking miles and miles of swimming with their boat. Like you don't know what's, you're just trying to stay alive at that point. You're not focused on, and all of a sudden this story, they get to shore, they live, and now she, you know they live in Germany. And, and she's now this amazing example of resilience and strength and power to overcome. I mean, they could have just sat helplessly in the boat and said, okay, this is it. Like we can't, we're in the middle of a storm. We can't get to shore. This is our lot in life. She got out of the boat. She swam to shore. Now they're all alive because of it. And I, I just, I constantly think about, you know, what, what we do and what we do when no one's looking, right? Like keep doing the right thing when no one's looking. Right. Keep doing what you truly believe you should be doing. And it might take one, one time or 50 or 100 or 1,000 or you may never get recognized for it, right? Like, or maybe you'll get barely recognized for the tremendous work you're doing. We don't get to, again, good fortune, luck. There's all sorts of things involved in there. But yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole different conversation there. What are some of the, as we begin to wrap up here, because I want to, I want to respect your time. What are some, I know I've mentioned a couple things that my family and I have done 
as an example to other people. But as you've done this, as you as you wrote this book, and I, I have to be honest, I haven't finished it yet. Uh, but like, what are some things that you have found that do? In other words, I want you to spark. I want you to kind of push people in their imagination right now as they begin to think about what can I do? Like in terms of the climate crisis conversation, what are some of the things that people can begin thinking about? Small little changes. We're not talking about solar panels tomorrow. You know, you mentioned the solar panel thing and I, the only reason I want to get a house, we've rented for 12 years because we've moved all over the country. But the one reason, literally in the top three reasons for getting a house is so that I can put solar panels in it to begin to be an example in that way, in kind of a very explicit way. Like, hey, you know, we drive the Prius and as soon as I can afford an electric car, we're getting one. Like we're doing all these things in our, in our world. Like, but that's a very visible thing, right. solar panels. So what are some, but what are some things that people can begin to do like right now as they come out of our conversation? Well, you mentioned solar panels. Actually, that's an interesting story for us because we tried three years ago to get solar panels and we had the company come out and they did their assessment and they said, well, actually, our orientation wasn't quite right. And there were some trees that were going to block too much of the sun during the day. And they didn't think we were a good candidate for installing solar panels. And so, well, too bad. We're not going to go down that route, it looks like. Uh, and then they, they sent out a, a, an email last year saying that they were building solar farms in the, in the acreage all around Ithaca and that uh, we as somebody who had thought about doing solar panels on a rooftop but couldn't, uh, could consider the alternative of buying a share in a solar farm. Uh, and so we investigated and, and we did uh, end up buying a share in a solar farm. Now we, we get power for two or three cents a kilowatt hour while the, the NYSEG customers are paying 10 or 11. And it's going to keep on going up. But I, I still felt that, well, we didn't, we didn't really, uh, we weren't able to serve as an example to others because how the hell does anybody know that we're right. uh, part owners in a solar farm? And so I talked to the CEO of the, of the company about that. He said, well, actually, we have a very simple solution. And he went into his office and came out with this red sign announcing we've gone solar. <laughs> and so we've got a, a nice red sign out in front of our house. So people know that even though they can't see solar panels on a rooftop that uh, that's what you're using and and yeah i I ride my bike most places i go at least when it's not uh icy out uh um, we haven't abandoned meat altogether but we don't eat nearly as much meat as we used to and we're we're thinking that'll phase out uh in in a, a way similar to the way it has for you uh and we we uh, we recycle everything. We we compost. They're, the Ithaca is a, a great community that way. They they have a place where you can take your food scraps in compostable bags and 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 drop them off. And the Cayuga Compost Company sells this magnificent, rich compost. We buy it back from them, you know, knowing that it was made yep. out of the the very waste we we had thrown into the bin. So yeah, we're doing little things, but I think for me, uh, the the thing I'm most eager to do is to talk to people like you and others who who in turn talk to lots and lots of other people. And and you know, I'm not at my age. I don't really stand to profit by getting greater renown uh, than than I've managed to acquire up until now. I'm 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 you know I don't have much time left on the earth. I want to do as much as I can for the causes I care about. And I think that uh, 
caring about people going forward. Uh, climate's got to be first on your list. You know, the pandemics will come again and they'll, yep. they'll, they'll go, but you know, the, the, the climate thing is, is, is orders of magnitude more threatening. The, the, the study that frightened me most was one showing that if the CO2 level reached a certain threshold, that there would be zero cloud cover anywhere on the earth. And if, if that threshold was reached, then the temperature rise, in addition to whatever other rise occurred from, from other effects that are known to be happening, the temperature rise over and above all that would be 14 degrees Celsius. And that means everything's going to die. Everything's going to burn up. And so uh, if we let that happen, how, how do we defend having let that happen? Uh, you know, this is a solvable problem. Tell your listeners to go Google Ezra Klein's podcast with Saul Griffiths and, and listen to him. He'll persuade, you, yep. he'll persuade you that this is something we can do and then have, have them go out and buy my book or if they can't afford it, send me an email, I'll send them a, a, a PDF of the final manuscript, uh, and I hope that will per persuade them that this is something we can pay for without forcing anybody to make any painful sacrifices. You know, it's it's we're not going to tax the poor to pay for all this. We're not going to even tax the people in the middle. They don't have enough. It's got to be the the wealthy who pay the extra taxes, and they're going to resist. Why? Why? Because you know they're not worried that. Somebody's got a proposal that's going to keep them from buying what they need. That's not on the table, obviously. What are they worried about then? Well, they won't be able to buy what they want. Uh, well, yep. what, what are the special extras they want? Those are all scarce things, things that are special. They're in short supply. How do you get those things? You get them by outbidding other people like you who want them. And, yep. and this just in, when your taxes go up, their taxes go up too. And so your red relative bidding power is exactly the same hmm. as if your taxes didn't go up. You'll be, be able to buy the same penthouse apartment with a sweeping view of the city as you would have if your taxes hadn't gone up. So, so that's, that's the, the magic in the, in the behavioral contagion analysis. It shows how because we influence one another, we need heavier cars because the others have one and we're at greater risk. If we don't have a heavy one, we're, we're, we're more likely to die. When we all buy heavier cars, we're all more likely to be injured or killed. Yep. If we all had smaller cars, we'd be safer, not more at risk. And so all those things are things we could do, and it wouldn't require any painful sacrifices. I, I have thought, uh, I mentioned earlier that I grew up in Guatemala. I've lived, um, I was born in New York, Rochester, New York, uh -huh. right down the road from uh, Ithaca. So I've, we've we're from the same area-ish, but grew up in Guatemala and spent a lot of time living overseas, six years living in like 30 different countries. So, and, and I feel way more comfortable outside the U.S. My point in saying all that is I've thought so much about uh, expatriating with my family, going to one of these places you said that do take it more seriously. But the only thing that, the thing that I keep coming back to, the thing that keeps me from moving forward in that process is the more people that give a damn that leave this place to go to a country yeah. that has already figured it out. Like the United States needs more people to stay here, raise a ruckus, make some noise, and then be in it for the long term. As painful as that might be to be here long term for me, someone yeah. that really wants yep. to live overseas, like it's gonna take thousands of people like me that wanna leave but have some measure of influence to help people and push people forward to stay here and say, you know what? 
Like we're we're going to stay here and figure this out. We are we can do it in our lifetime. We can see this thing change. Yep, that's I, I hear you and I applaud that. That's terrific. Yeah, so we'll see. I, I, I there's still a chance, but I, I mean that's the conversation I'm having with my wife. Is like, do I want you mentioned it earlier, like about like you know you you don't have much time on the earth left. Like with my kids, do I want do I want them to ever even remotely think that Papa moved us to you know Germany? or to Canada or wherever to run away from the the United States who was doing like terrible things at the time. Like, no, I, I want them to see someone that was a fighter, a good kind of fighter, like a fighter that was going to stay right. and commit to long-term change. So that's the only thing keeping me here. And I think I think it will long-term keep me here. Right so, but this was, uh, Robert, this was fascinating, fantastic. I know we didn't get to like half the things I wanted to talk about, but I, I will link to your book in the show notes. We'll share it online. I know I'm going to go and buy as many of your books as I can. I know there's several titles that really spoke to me, that stuck out to me, that I want to uh, take a look at. I think I have a lot to, we have a lot to learn from you. So um, thank you so much for joining me and us on the Let's Give a Damn podcast today. And if you've got uh, some some openings to steer me to people who you th- you think would like to talk to me about any of this, I'm game. You know, that's, that, I'd like to spend more time doing this if I can going forward. Fantastic. I will definitely do that. I have I have lots of friends who like to talk and ask questions as well. So we'll 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 connect on that later on. But thank you so much for joining me. Sounds good. That's the show today, friends. I hope you were challenged. I hope you enjoyed it. A massive thanks to Robert Frank for joining me on the show today. And thank you all for listening. I created this show. Chad Snavely produced it. Let's Give a Damn as part of the Matter Media family. I am sending so much love and peace to each one of you during these crazy times. Stay safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.